Good afternoon to you. Hey, lively noon service. I like that. Nice to see you. Hey, uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking in here about uh, serving in our children's ministry and investing in the next generation of God's church. We've had a great response from folks in terms of people stepping up to serve, uh, but we still have needs. Uh, this morning, as a matter of fact, we've had to close seven children's classrooms over the course of the morning just because uh, we don't have the requisite volunteers to step into those areas of service and invest in the next generation of God's church. So uh, if you feel like God is tugging at your heart to do that, he is. Uh, if you don't feel like God is tugging at your heart to do that, he is. Uh, so we would love for you to just go outside those doors uh, on the way out to the right, enter into our children's wing and talk to Andy Notice and step in and serve the next generation of God's church. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 5. We continue our series called Believe, a journey through the gospel of John. And just to, by way of review, let's remind ourselves where we've been the last couple of weeks. John wrote a biography of the life of Jesus. Remember, he was about 16, 17 years old, give or take, when he began to follow Jesus as his disciple. And by the time he was about 80 or 90, he thought to himself, I probably should write some of this stuff down. And so he begins to write down his biography of the life of the Jesus, but it's a biography with a purpose now. And his purpose is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. So we got to John chapter 5, and what John tells us in John chapter 5 is that Jesus heals a man who was born, uh, we, actually we don't know that he was born paralyzed, but he had been crippled for 38 years at a pool called Bethesda at the northeast side of Jerusalem. And the religious leaders there, the Pharisees and Sadducees, we'll talk about Sadducees a little bit more this morning, uh, see that he's done work on the Sabbath day, and they say, you're not allowed to do that. Only God's allowed to work on the Sabbath day. And Jesus uses that argument subsequent to healing a man at the pool of Bethesda as an opportunity to launch into what we're going to call Jesus' keynote address in the book of John, his introductory remarks. He'll have some closing thoughts in John chapter 13 through 17. But Jesus, in John chapter 5, really introduces himself. And again, we talked about the book of John really slowing to a grinding halt in a lot of ways. John kind of pumps the brakes so that we can focus in real tightly on what Jesus says uh, in the, at the end of John chapter 5 and even into John chapter 6. And so the way he begins his introductory remarks is by establishing some fundamental distinctives of the Christian faith. And last week we talked about Trinitarian theology. That is to say that God is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is triune. Jesus lays the foundation for that aspect of Christian theology. Now, where we're going to pick up this week in verse 24, Jesus is going to lay the foundations for another fundamental aspect of Christian theology. And so that's where we're going to pick it up. John chapter 5, verse 24. Look what Jesus says. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. We'll actually come back to verse 24 and close our time together with verse 24 today. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. This is where we're going to focus our time today. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him, that's the father, has given him the son authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel, Jesus says at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice 
and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word to us. God, thank you for your living word, Jesus. And thank you that he delivered this message and that there were people there who listened and wrote it down so that we could have your written word in the scriptures. Pray, oh God, that you would speak to us today, Holy Spirit, that you would be uniquely present in this place and may yours be the only voice that's heard here as we unpack together this concept of heaven. In the name of Christ, God's people said, amen. I indicated there in my prayer, but this is what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 5, verses 24 through 29. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about what happens after we die. He's talking about what happens when we transition from this life into the next. And so some of us will die, and that's what will be the transition from this life to the next. And maybe, maybe some of us will still be living when Jesus comes back. Wouldn't that be cool? You don't even have to face death at all. He's just going to catch us up to meet him in the air. But regardless, if you are a saint in Christ, that is to say, if you have responded to the invitation of Jesus with an affirmative and come to him in, 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 through uh, repentance and faith, what awaits you on the other side of this life is a resurrection to new life. And those who have gone before us who are now in their tombs, one day the Son of God, Jesus, will crack open the sky and he will say, come out, and they will come out to a resurrection and new life in him. Now, the Bible talks about this in a bunch of different ways, and the Bible uses a bunch of different words. Here in John chapter 5, Jesus uses the word resurrection to new life, but he'll also use that word paradise. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Or for our common language today, we use the word heaven. So the first question we start off with is, what is heaven? What is heaven? What is, it, what is this resurrection to new life that Jesus is talking about? What happens to the dead when they come out of their tombs and they go to meet him in the air, those who have said yes to Jesus? What is this paradise that Jesus is talking about? What is heaven? Well, the Bible talks about heaven in a lot of different ways, and Jesus doesn't fill in all the gaps for us there in John chapter 5, but as Scripture unfolds, the Spirit of God begins to speak more and more to his uh, people and those who were the authors of Scripture, and it gives us a little bit of a fuller view of heaven and what it is that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 5. Uh, the Scripture talks about heaven as a city. If you uh, notice in Revelation chapter one or chapter 21 and 22, uh, John, uh, same John that wrote this gospel, by the way, talks about heaven as a city. Uh, the Bible talks about heaven as God's rest. In the book of Hebrews, it compares heaven and eternal rest to the Sabbath day, God's temporary rest on the seventh day. The Bible talks about heaven as new creation. That is to say that all things are made new in Christ, Revelation 21. The Bible talks about heaven as a restored Eden. That is to say God created the world perfect, put Adam and Eve in it, original man and original woman. They rebelled, fractured the whole thing, and God will now restore all things and restore them to the perfection that he intended at the beginning. 
And uh, the Bible also talks about heaven as the presence of God, specifically in the book of Hebrews, comparing heaven, this resurrection to new life, when the dead are called out of their tombs, uh, this resurrection to new life as the full and unadulterated and, and unhindered presence of God. The way the Bible talks about that is it says that heaven is kind of like the holy of holies or the most holy place. If you remember from the Old Testament, in the Jewish temple, there was a place called the most holy place where the glory of God, the Hebrew word is Shekinah, dwelt in that place in a unique way like no other place. And only one person, the high priest, and only one time every year would be able to go into that place. And the Bible says, but heaven, heaven now, that awaits the people of God, that awaits his saints, is like that most holy place where God's presence dwells completely and totally but it's interesting to me because not any one of these pictures from the Bible gives us the full idea of what heaven is like. We know that because the Bible gives us multiple pictures, doesn't it? Multiple ways to kind of fill in the gaps of what it means to be resurrected to new life. And so it's not just like, you know, a really long nap or something, right? Even though, does that not sound heavenly right now? It does, doesn't it? Like a long rest. Or it's not just new creation, although that's part of it. It's a very comprehensive paradise of God. In fact, in, in the book of 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul writes a little bit about this heaven that God enabled him to get a glimpse of in his life. And, and he writes this. This is great. He says, I know a man. Now, I want to stop there because you remember I point out stuff in the Bible that's funny? I think this is funny because pretty much every Bible scholar agrees that Paul is talking about himself here. But he's saying, I know a man, like in the third person. Do you ever talk about yourself in the third person? That's pretty, you know, that's pretty stupid. But beside the point, the point is, here's when I talk about myself in the third person. When I did something that I don't want people to know about, okay? It's like, you know what? I know a guy, this is not me, I know a guy that once ate 30 Timbits in one sitting. Not me, but I know a man. It's, I'm asking for a friend. Do you ever do that? It's a little bit of what Paul's doing right here. He's not embarrassed, but he's not going to get into total detail as to what he saw. So he starts with, I know a guy. Pretty much every Bible scholar says, this is Paul talking. But he knows a guy who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Now, it's not as if there are three layers of heaven or there's different tiers of heaven. That's not what Paul is saying. But in first century Hebrew mindset, there were kind of three different ways that they talked about heaven or the heavens. So the first way would be the, the moon and the stars and the things that we can see, but we can't necessarily reach out and touch. So the Bible says, says, in the beginning, God created the what? Heavens and the earth, right? Sun, moon, stars, those kinds of things. The second kind of layer of heaven would be the cosmos or the universe beyond what we can see. So beyond the moon and the stars, I know there's something, but that's kind of the second heaven. And then in the Hebrew mindset, that third heaven would be where God dwelt. That's God's house, God's home. So the Bible says, uh, the heavens, God says in the word, the heavens are my throne. I mean, is his throne the moon and the earth is my footstool? No, 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 no. He's talking about this place, this third heaven where the presence of God dwells. So Paul is saying, I know a guy who in Christ 14 years ago was caught up to that place where God dwells. Okay, caught up to that heaven. 
And he says, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. This might have been an out-of-body experience. I might have still been in my physical. I'm not even sure. It was that crazy. God knows. And look what Paul says. He says, and I know that this man was caught up into, come on now, say that word with me, paradise, baby. Don't you love that word? That's a fun word, isn't it? We get this word paradise from the Greek word paradise that's used right here in 2 Corinthians. It's the same word that Jesus uses with the thief on the cross when he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He says, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. Check this out. And he heard things, talking about this man, a friend, a friend of a friend, right? He heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. This is, this is, this is fascinating to me. Now listen really closely. Paul was not a stupid man. He spoke multiple languages. He was a citizen of multiple people groups, Roman citizen, Jewish citizen. He grew up in a very religious and very rigorous intellectual community. He was able to talk with people who were Greek and people who were Hebrew, people from all different cultures and backgrounds. He was very, very smart. He knew a lot of words. (laughs) And still, he says, I cannot describe to you the paradise that I got to see. Now that's great, isn't it? We could just say amen and go, can't we? Oh, man. I can't even tell you what God has waiting. If you're taking notes, jot this down. This is our really simple definition of heaven. We've kind of, you know, I've kind of just grabbed all the biblical pictures of heaven. We're just going to come up with a real simple definition of heaven, and here it is. Heaven is the paradise that awaits the people of God. Heaven is the paradise that awaits the people of God. It's, it's a city. It's a, it's, a, it's a new creation. It's a restored Eden. It's a paradise. It's all those things put together and more, so much more that we can't even describe it with human language. It's beyond our comprehension what God has prepared for those who love him. That is cool, is it not? Now that's cool. Here, here's my question, though. Jesus is making his introductory remarks. This is, this is his, his keynote speech. This is his, all right, I'll tell you who I am. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God, second person of the Trinity. He goes, he goes into all that stuff. Like, I'm going to tell you who I am, okay? And he starts with Trinity, and the second thing he talks about is heaven. That is fascinating to me. I would have thought he would talk about the atonement, being a guy who leans towards reformed theology, I want him to talk about the predestination, you know? And what does he talk about? Heaven. He talks about where you're gonna go when you die if you said yes to him. So here's my second question. What's the big deal about heaven? You know what I mean? Like, why is it so important to Jesus? Does, does every, nod your head if you understand the question I'm asking the scripture right now. Why is, it, why, is it, why is it such a big deal that he feels compelled to talk about it? I've just talked about Trinitarian theology. Now I'm going to talk about in the twinkling of an eye. We're caught up to meet him in the air. And the tombs are vacated now. And we're risen to new life, eternal life in him in a place called heaven. Why is that so important to Jesus? So here's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I don't just want to talk about what heaven is because we just arrived at a very simple, very basic definition in the scripture. We could fill in all kinds of gaps and get all kinds of details there. But I want to talk to you about the implications of heaven. Why is it so important? What's the big deal about heaven? 
Because a heavenly mindset and a heavenly view makes a difference in the way we live today. You know what I'm saying? If, if we've got our eyes on heaven, if we've got our hearts focused on what's to come, it will radically change the way you interact and the way you live in the here and now. A heavenly mindset has immediate and significant implications. Let's just start here. Here's one of them. Heaven moves me to sacrifice. Heaven moves me to sacrifice. If I am thinking about the hope of heaven all the time, it moves me to release things in this current life and it helps me to sacrifice however I want to do that or however God calls me to do that. For example... I went to a steakhouse uh, downtown. A friend of mine had a birthday, and he wanted to take uh, a couple of us out to steak for his birthday. And I said, yes, th- th- I, w- I would be glad to give you that gift on your birthday, allow you to take me out for steak. And he took us to a place called Jacob's. Have you seen, have you know the Jacob's downtown? It is, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, this is, the, this is the, the paradise that God has prepared for those who await him. It is so, it is so, so good. And, I, and, I, and, and you know what I wasn't tempted by? Swiss chalet at lunch. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was easy to make that sacrifice. It was easy not to dip the thing in the sauce, right? Easy to make that sacrifice because I knew what was coming. See, in the same way, heaven moves me to sacrifice in the here and now. Paul doesn't use Swiss chalet language, but he uses this language. Look what he says in Romans 8. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the sacrifices that I make in the here and now, the things that I've got to endure, the painful, the difficult, the things that I've got to persevere through. And for Paul, it was a lot. I mean, go read in Acts about all the things that Paul had to go through. Shipwrecked and bitten by snakes. I mean, just, it's like insult to injury, like snakes. I mean, just, and he says, all of those things, the sufferings of this present time, look at it, are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. (laughs) That's funny. They just don't even compare. It's not even worth it. It's not even worth comparing. Put the sufferings on this side of the scale, and you put the glory of heaven on this other side of the scale, and it just falls to the floor, and the sufferings are launched off, and it's as if if they're no more. It's funny, because John Lennon wrote a song uh, a number of years ago called Imagine. Have you heard that song, Imagine? The first lyrics are, imagine there's no heaven. Like, what, what would it mean if we just lived for today and we didn't live for forever? What would it mean if our eyes were totally focused on the here and now and we didn't look forward to the paradise that awaits the people of God? What would that look like? Well, interestingly enough, we've got a couple of case studies in history where we can take John Lennon's proposal and say, okay, what if people imagined that there was no heaven? The Sadducees, who created an empire for themselves in a lot of ways, were one of those people groups that imagined that there was no heaven. We've been talking about the Pharisees a little bit in here. Remember the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the keepers of the law, the scribes? The Sadducees were kind of their counterpart in a lot of ways, and they were the aristocrats and the wealthy, religious leaders as well, and they had a lot of power and authority that went with their religiousness or their religiosity. So there was a group of about 70 folks called the Sanhedrin that kind of ran a Jewish culture. Most of them were Sadducees. Most often the high priest was a Sadducee. 
And like I said, they created a, Sadducee, a little bit of a Sadducean empire. If you Google Sadducean empire, you won't see that. I made that up. But I didn't make up Sadducees, okay? That's, that's real. In, in fact, I've heard this is a good way to remember it. I don't want to be a Sadducee because Sadducees are sad, you see. <laughs> Do you like that? Kaya liked it. I don't know why you didn't like it. Not Kaya liked it. All right. And so the Sadducees would have been some of those Jews that John talks about that are listening to Jesus, the Pharisees, the keepers of the law, and also the Sadducees. It's significant because the Sadducees differed from the Pharisees in a number of ways theologically. And one of the ways that's especially pertinent for our discussion this morning is that the Sadducees didn't believe in heaven. They were the religious leaders. They didn't believe in a resurrection to new life. They didn't believe there was anything on the other side of this planet. And so, or not the other side of this planet, other side of this life. So in John chapter 5, when Jesus starts talking about a resurrection to new life, they would have been going, <gasps> we disagree with that. Enough to kill him, as a matter of fact, eventually. But the Sadducees, because they didn't believe in a heaven, because they didn't believe in a life to come, what it required of them in terms of their life in the here and now was to acquire and amass wealth and power and privilege and authority to the best of their ability. Did you catch that? If, 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 I, if I don't have a Jacobs to look forward to, I'm going to fill up at Swiss Chalet. Does that make sense to you? I don't want to make that sacrifice. So the Sadducees, same way. There was no heaven to look forward to, so I'll just take all that I can take in the here and now. And they created an empire for themselves. An empire, as a matter of fact, that disappeared when the temple disappeared in 70 AD when the temple in Jerusalem was sacked and destroyed. The Sadducees had no life left. You don't hear about modern-day Sadducees because they're gone. That empire has been erased. Why? Because there was not a heavenly view in mind. They didn't believe there was a heaven at all. See, but Christians are different. Jesus followers and people that follow the Jesus way and understand that Jesus promises a resurrection to new life live differently. They are far more willing to sacrifice in the here and now because they have a heavenly mindset. So let's talk about the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. Uh, a guy named Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and he talks about the reasons why Christianity really flourished in the first several centuries following the death of Christ. I mean, Rodney Stark's question is a great question. It's like this ragtag group of nobodies, like less than 100 of them, that four centuries later had completely taken over the Roman Empire. Like, how did that happen? Great question, right? Great question. And he says one of the reasons why is because Christians were so heavenly minded, they were willing to sacrifice in the here and now. And their sacrifices in the here and now caused them to flourish in ways that people who are not heavenly minded were not able to flourish. For example, there were two major kind of epidemics that swept through the Roman Empire in the first four centuries. Once in the, one in the second century and, once in the, and one in the fourth century. And we're not sure what those epidemics are. They could have been the plague. They could have been smallpox. could have been any number of things. But at, at one time during the second century and then in the fourth century, there were as many as 35,000 people a week dying in the city of Rome. Can you imagine that? As a city of a million people, 35,000 a week, that would be like us attending 210,000 funerals a week. And what happened was in the cities where kind of, you know, like a lot of germs live, right? All of the pagans, and I'm not using that word pejoratively, I'm just saying people that didn't have a heavenly view or a life-to-come mindset vacated the cities. They left the cities. They didn't stay in the cities because they didn't want to get sick and they didn't want to, uh, 
they didn't want to get ill. They didn't want to die. And so they escaped and they ran away and they left. You know who didn't leave? The Christians. Why? Because I want to stay here and care for the sick. Not just people of faith, Christians who are sick. I'll care for pagans who are sick. And the interesting thing that happened was that Christians and their mortality rate was far lower than the mortality rate of pagans. Why? Because if you abandon somebody who is sick with smallpox, they're going to die. But if you stay and care for them, they might live. So many of the Christians that stayed in those cities eventually sacrificed with their own lives. But in many cases, Christians lived through those plagues, lived through those epidemics. More so, even more than this, this is great. Christians weren't just taking care of Christians. They were taking care of pagans in the cities too. They were happy to stick around and take care of them. And these pagans were going, hey, this Jesus thing sounds pretty good if you're staying here and caring for me. And so as Christianity grew over the next couple of centuries, that was one of the primary reasons why is because they were so heavenly minded, they were willing to sacrifice in the here and now. And their sacrifice in the here and now caused them to live and grow and flourish. One of those pagan doctors actually that abandoned the cities was a guy named Galen. And Rodney Stark kind of uh, concludes the reason why Galen left these cities and the reason why the Christian stays. And this is a very objective book, by the way. This is not like a hyper-Christian book. It's a very objective, historical look at the rise of Christianity. And look what Rodney Stark writes. He says, Galen, this doctor that abandoned the city, lacked belief in life beyond death. While Christians were certain that this is only a prelude. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? For Galen to have remained in Rome to treat the afflictive would have required bravery far beyond that which was needed by Christians to do the same thing. It's like for Christians to stay and care for people in the cities and care for the sick, it didn't even require courage of them, is what he's saying. It would have required courage from Galen because there ain't anything waiting for him. But it didn't even require courage or not as much for these Christians. Why? Why? Happy to sacrifice. I got heaven waiting for me, baby. Ain't a problem. That's pretty cool. Second implication of heaven for those who are heavenly minded. Heaven removes the pressure. Heaven removes the pressure. Listen really closely here. There are things that we try to extract from this life. Meaning, purpose, significance, complete fulfillment, now listen close, that this life was never meant to bring us. There are things that we want from our spouse that our spouse was never meant to give us. There are things that we expect from our kids or from our work or for our, from our money. And those things, your spouse, your kids, your work, your money, whatever, they can give you some stuff, but they were never meant to give you everything. And so when you put pressure on them to give you things in this life that were only meant for the life to come, what do you have? Disaster, don't you? I spent a lot of time on elevators this last week because I was away at the district conference uh, with our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, and so I was up and down the elevator in my hotel room a lot. And there's a little sign on every elevator that says, please don't load more than X number of pounds on this elevator. You know what I'm talking about? You ever in an elevator with a bunch of people and you're like, oh man, this could be bad. You know, this is too much weight here. And it's like, I shouldn't have had all those Timbits, right? Uh, 
but, you know, that's beside the point. The point is, if you put too much weight on that elevator, if you put too much pressure on that elevator, you're going to get disaster. It was never meant to bear that weight. In the same way, your life in the here and now was never meant to bear the weight of eternal and total fulfillment. Yes, God brings good things, but heaven is that paradise that we're waiting for. Paul starts talking about this in Philippians chapter 3. He starts talking about all the things that he could have trusted to bring fulfillment. He could have trusted his religious background, his upbringing. He could have trusted any number of things. And he says, you know what? I'm not going to put pressure on any of those things. In fact, compared to knowing Christ and being with him, compared to that, these things are considered rubbish, garbage. It's a very sanitized way of the actual word that Paul uses in Philippians 3. He says, I'm not going to put pressure on those things. They were never meant to bring me that level of fulfillment. And what does he say? He says, I do not consider that I've made it my own. He says, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I keep my mind on heaven and refuse to put pressure on this life that was never meant to put on this life. I was reading a a short story this week by a guy named uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Some of you might know Tolkien. And the short story is called Leaf by Niggle. Um, (laughs) It's really what the short story is. Everybody knows Lord of the Rings, right? Have you seen Lord of the Rings, the movie? Have you seen it? Yeah, they wrote a book about it too. It's crazy. Uh, And this guy named Tolkien that did it. And in the 1940s, when Tolkien was writing Lord of the Rings, he had all these different, you know, storylines going and these languages that he had created in his epic kind of masterpiece. In the midst of that, his son went off to World War II. And his son going to World War II caused him so much anxiety and so much stress that he got writer's block and he put his masterpiece aside for a minute. He had to defer that dream just for a moment because of writer's block, not for a moment, for a couple of years. And during that couple of years of writer's block, he wrote a short story called Leaf by Niggle. And I'm going to ruin it for you because it's a fantastic story. And it gave me a picture this week personally of what it means to not put pressure on this life that's not necessary or this life was never meant to bear. The story opens by telling us that Niggle, who's our title character, is getting ready for a long trip. Now, if you know anything about British history or English uh, literature, anytime someone is going on a long trip, they're going to die. So Niggle is going to die. And niggle is named niggle because niggle means to gnaw or chew at something. And so niggle is gnawing at or chewing on his own masterpiece. Niggle is a painter. And does anybody have any idea what niggle paints? Leaves. (laughs) He paints leaves. What niggle has in his mind is this masterpiece, this tree that he always wanted to paint with the wind sweeping through and every leaf different, but every leaf come from the same tree. And it was beautiful and perfect. But niggle was a procrastinator, much like Tolkien. Niggle uh, paid so much attention to the minute details that he was never able to finish his masterpiece. Most importantly, Niggle was often interrupted by people in his life that needed things from him. And Niggle was kind-hearted. He's, you know, a little bit of a curmudgeon at times, but he was kind-hearted. So he was willing to put his masterpiece aside for the moment in order to help people, specifically a man named Parrish who lived next door to him. Parrish was Niggle's neighbor. 
And Parrish one day came to Niggle, and he doesn't pay any attention to Niggle's masterpiece. He doesn't appreciate what Niggle is doing. He doesn't even look up at it. He just says, I've got a need. You need to go get a doctor for my wife. And by the way, get a contractor because the wind is blowing the shingles off my roof. And Niggle puts his masterpiece aside for the moment, gets on a bike, rides into town to fetch a doctor and a contractor. On his ride, Niggle gets rained on and he acquires a fever. And a week later, it's time for him to go on his long trip, long before he gets the opportunity to finish his masterpiece. Niggle gets from this life, transitions from this life into the next And what he finds himself in is a large meadow and there's a bicycle in that large meadow and it's got his name on it. And he gets on the bike and here's what he experiences and I just want to read it to you. It says, Niggle pushed open the gate, jumped on the bicycle and went bowling downhill in the spring sunshine. Before long, he found that that path on which he started had disappeared and the bicycle was rolling along over a marvelous turf. It was green and close, and yet he could see every blade distinctly. Now listen close. He seemed to remember having seen or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow came up between him and the sun. Niggle looked up and fell off his bicycle. Before him stood the tree. His tree finished. If you could say that about a tree that was alive... Its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and he had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree, slowly lifted his arms and opened them wide and said, it's a gift. See, what Niggle deferred in this life, his masterpiece, he found in the next life in far greater detail and far more flourishing than he could have ever dreamed. All that Niggle, would cre- all that Niggle was able to create was a one-dimensional picture of a tree. By the way, when Niggle died, it was dismantled and used to shingle his own house. But when he got into the life to come, what he found was his dreams had become reality that that longing in his heart had been fulfilled. And he looked back and he thought, you know what? Now it makes sense why I would just hit pause on that masterpiece in order to invest in other people. I did not need to put unnecessary pressure on this life because this life was not the life that I was meant to live. I was made for another place. I was made for this place where my dreams became a reality. Let me ask you something, people of God. If you knew for sure That every longing of your heart, that God-given longing of your heart, not that crazy longing of your heart, the God-given one, every dream of being loved, every dream of being in relationship, every dream of the work that God created you for, everyone was going to come to fruition in eternity. Would that change the way that you live now? Would it change the way that you expect things from this life to fulfill you that this life was never meant to give you? A friend of Tolkien's, a guy named C.S. Lewis, writes this. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. (laughs) 
Why put pressure on this life to extract the things that only the life to come was meant to give you? Let's close it up with this one, ready? Heaven allows me to finish well. Heaven allows me to finish well. When the apostle Paul got near to the end of his life, when it was time for him to take his long journey, he writes some of his last words to his protege, Timothy. And at the end of his second letter letter to Timothy in chapter four, these are really Paul's last words. Look what he writes. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. In other words, it's time for me to take my long journey, isn't it? Keep going. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I have finished well. Why? Because henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. <laughs> and watch, it gets better. It gets better. Can it get better? It gets better. Watch. And not only for me, but also for all who have longed for his appearing. And because I know that heaven waits for me, because I know that the tombs will be vacated, because I know that I will be resurrected to new life and spend eternity with Christ, I can finish well, whether I've got 48 hours or 48 years left, I can finish well. One of my uh, very first interactions with a couple here at Bayview Glen was a couple named Kingsley and Burl. Uh, Kingsley is an awesome name, number one. If you are having a baby and you're thinking about like a tailor or something like that, don't do that. Name your baby Kingsley. That's a man's name, is it not? So when I met Kingsley and Beryl, they were, they were well into their uh, 70s, and they had been attending Bayview Glen here for a very long time. And I had a, a couple of just kind of casual conversations and interactions with them. But when I really kind of started up a friendship with them was on a plane coming home from Tampa. I was coming home after some adoption stuff that Amy and I were doing down there. And I was on the back of the plane. And I watched Kingsley and Beryl get on the front of the plane and sit down. So I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I haven't shaven in a week. And if you haven't seen me when I don't shave, like I, I, I'm like really sparse and splotchy. So I look like I'm 14. It's amazing. And then I had a hat with a straight brim pulled down over my face, and I'm wearing like a T-shirt, and I probably smelled. And I'm thinking, how am I going to go up to this couple in their 70s, and he's wearing like a sport coat, right? How am I going to go up to him and say, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I'm your new pastor, you know, like an idiot. Like, what am I going to do here? So... Finally, as, as the plane takes off and they don't even recognize that I'm there, they don't see me, and even if they did see me, again, they probably wouldn't recognize me. I go up and the row behind them is empty, so I sit down in the row behind them and I lean up to this very conservative, very conservative Canadian Christian couple, well into their 70s now, very conservative, and I lean over and I say, ma'am, would you mind if I bum a smoke off of you? <laughs> And, and she didn't think it was funny at all. Um, and Kingsley turned around. Kingsley turned around, and he is angry, man. He is hotter than a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. I'm telling you what, he was, he was angry. But then I said, but I'm your pastor. And Kingsley loses it. He's, he's the funniest thing he's ever heard, right? He just loses it. He's weeping in the aisle like, this is great. This is amazing. And Beryl, who was in the second service today, still doesn't think it's funny. But I think it's funny, okay? I thought it was funny. And I looked down, I said, Kingsley, what are you reading, bud? He goes, well, I was diagnosed with terminal cancer. I don't have much time left. Uh, my journey is coming to an end here pretty soon, and I'm taking a much longer journey. So I'm reading this book called Heaven is for Real. 
the next Sunday, uh, Kingsley brought a copy of that book for me, Heaven is for Real. It's sitting on my shelf in my office. It's one of the coolest things I own. It's not necessarily a theologically robust text, nor is Leaf by Niggle, by the way. But what it did was it gave Kingsley a vision of heaven, and he became so heavenly-minded, even in his last years, months, weeks, and days, that he was willing to sacrifice, that he didn't put undue pressure on this life, and he finished well, so well, in fact, that he was in here on a Wednesday counting offering because we have volunteers that do that. I go in and steal coffee every now and then. And three days later, Kingsley took his long journey. In pain, on pain medication, unable to walk, he's still here serving God's church. Why? Because I got heaven waiting for me. It doesn't doesn't matter to me. I'm happy to help. I'm happy to serve. He finished so well. There's a story of a little boy that's flying a kite in a park and an older man walks up to him and he says, what are you up to? He says, I'm flying a kite. He says, great. The little boy lets a little string out and the kite goes a little further and he lets a little more string out and the kite goes a little further and every time he lets a little bit of string out, less and less of the kite is visible and it's disappearing and it's disappearing and it's disappearing. In fact, so so much so, that it completely disappeared and the little boy and the man couldn't even see the kite anymore. So the old man says to the boy, do you know the kite is still there? And he says, yes. He says, well, how do you know? You can't see it. He says, you're right, I guess I can't see it. He says, think, think. How do you know it's still there? Well, I guess I know it's still there because there's still tension on the string. (laughs) Ain't nobody's cut the string. I I still feel it. Even though I can't see it, I know it's there. Here's my prayer for you, men and women, today, that the hope of heaven, although we can't see it, and even if we did, like Paul, we would go, I'm not even sure I can describe it to you, would be the tension in our lives that moves us to sacrifice in the here and now for the sake of God's kingdom, that moves us to not put undue pressure on this life and weight that this life was never meant to bear, and that moves us to finish well no matter how much time we've got left. Pray with me. God, thanks for your grace to us and your goodness. Thank you for your presence here in this place. God, for those who have gone on before us that have died in Christ, God, may today's message from you in John chapter five remind us that one day those tombs will be vacated and they won't be needed anymore. Remind us of the paradise that awaits us that when this life is over and we enter into the life to come, for those you call your own, we will be caught up to meet you in the air and spend eternity with you. Thank you for the hope of heaven and thank you for the way that it changes the here and now. We turn our hearts now to you to worship and declare our great need for you. In Christ's name, the people of God said, amen. Let's stand and respond as we worship through song.